0: You know, we haven't talked that much about these economic cases, but Harlan was a powerful dissenter when the Supreme Court declared the Sherman Antitrust Act unconstitutional. He was the sole dissenter in that. When they claimed the income tax was unconstitutional, Harlan dissented. In the Lochner case, when they said all labor regulations per se were unconstitutional, Harlan dissented. So he was coming from a very different place. He wanted to be true to his life experiences. We talked about the years leading up to the Civil War. We talked about the relationship with Robert Harlan. All of these things combined and were part of his values. And it, it didn't necessarily mean he was, he was any less attentive to the strictures of the Constitution because many people regard him as the first originalist, you know, that he was defending the original intent and the, the, the specific text of the Constitution. But he, he did so also because he had a set of personal understandings and connections that opened his mind to possibilities that his colleagues did not have.
1: Hello and welcome to See You in Court, the podcast that informs you about the Georgia civil justice system, what it means to you, and how it protects individual rights. This podcast is a collaboration between the Georgia Civil Justice Foundation and the Georgia Institute of Technology. Your hosts are Robin Fraser clark and Lester Tate, who are both past presidents of the State Bar of Georgia and currently serve on the board of directors of the Georgia Civil Justice Foundation. And now, this episode of See You in Court.
2: Good morning, friends and lovers of the law, and welcome to See You in Court. I am Robin Fraser Clark, and with me is my co host, the awe inspiring S. Lester Tate. Good morning, Lester. How Good are morning,
3: you? Good morning, Robin. Good morning. <laughs> um, I, I'm, uh, it's nice to be up and inspiring all around, I hope. <laughs>
2: <laughs> That's right. Just make sure you have plenty of caffeine. We're taping early That's this right. morning. That's right. Uh, we're excited about our episode today. A very interesting person with us, Peter Kanellos. Uh, He's a writer uh, and senior editor of Politico and has written a new book that we're going to be talking about. Um, let me tell our listeners a little bit about Peter. Peter S. Canellos is a longtime senior editor for Politico and formerly the, the Boston Globe, where he served as Washington, Washington Bureau Chief an editorial page editor, and oversaw two Pulitzer Prize winning projects and seven finalists. At Politico, he is currently managing editor for Enterprise, responsible for all investigative and magazine coverage. He is also an award-winning writer and editor of Last Lion: The Fall and Rise of Ted Kennedy, which was a top 10 New York Times bestseller. A graduate of the University of Pennsylvania and Columbia Law School, he has spent much of his career furthering the development of young writers. He is a lead organizer of a global fellowship program at the International Women's Media Foundation. He lives in Washington, D.C. and Great Barrington, Massachusetts. Peter's new book, The Great Dissenter, the story of John Marshall Harlan, America's judicial hero is the profound tale of how a former slave owner with the help of a once enslaved man who grew up alongside him and was believed to be his half brother, changed American law. Peter has harbored an interest in Harlan since his days at Columbia Law School three decades ago. The Great Dissenter captures a huge swath of history from aristocratic pre-Civil War Kentucky to Cincinnati at the height of the Underground Railroad to the famed horse racing grounds of Europe, to the velvet chambers of the Supreme Court in Washington, DC. It gives readers a front row seat for some of the greatest legal battles of all time as Americans fight for civil rights and economic justice in the Gilded Age. And it shows how one man's willingness to stand up to his colleagues reverberated for a century until his dissenting views, not those of the court's majority, became the law of the land. And it was named by Publishers Weekly as one of the best books in nonfiction in 2021. That's pretty impressive stuff right there. Peter Canellos, welcome to the show.
0: Thank you, Robin. And thank you, Lester. It's great to be here.
3: Yeah, welcome. I, I'm hoping you're going to help us sort out all of the Harlans and Marshals uh, on the Supreme Court. <laughs> you know, today for a while I thought you had either be named Harlan or Marshall to be on the Supreme Court, like you had to be a Windsor to be Queen or King of England. You know, <laughs> exactly. Yeah.
2: Yeah, we're going to hear we're a little gonna... bit of that, I'm, I'm sure, and the the lineage involved. Um, first, though, Peter, can you tell us our our listeners a little bit about your your personal story? how you got to be to where you are now.
0: Um, Well, I'm somebody who uh, practiced journalism from a very early age, from when I was in high school, and uh, uh, then debated heavily about going to law school because I had an interest in the law, but I sort of felt like I was going to go back into journalism. Um, Ended up uh, going to law school and now uh, I'm very happy that I did uh, because it kindled an interest in, among other things, John Marshall Harlan and uh, satisfied my my interest in the law. Um, but the vast majority of my career has been in journalism at the Boston Globe uh, for for 24 years and uh, at Politico for the last seven years. So um you know, I've obviously uh you know ridden all of the highs and lows of journalism over the last 30 years, which is a, a rocky uh a rocky path for some of the legacy outlets like Globe that uh that had to suffer with the digital changeover, but also places like Politico that have really thrived in the digital changeover. So um it's been a a, a great sort of front row seat for uh for the role of a journalist in society. And now um Uh, I'm very honored and very pleased to be able to write the Harlan uh, book, which I I feel like is a really important sort of statement about wisdom in the law and the roots of judicial decision making. And it does, Robin, as you suggested, trace back to uh, me as a law student reading uh, Harlan's dissents in, in civil rights classes and even spotting a few of his economic dissents, which just is powerful. And uh, wondering, uh, back then three decades ago, you know, how is it that, uh, you know, here was this man that was operating a hundred years before I was reading these cases. And the entire legal system and all of his Supreme Court colleagues were on one side, not just in the race cases, but in all these economic cases as well. And he took this pretty much lonely dissenting posture in almost all of these cases. And now his views were exactly the state of the law circa 1988. So uh, that hasn't really changed. You know, if anything, we've become more confirmed uh, in the idea that Harlan was right and all of his colleagues were wrong. And and that's what makes this both an extraordinary uh, uh, story about the law. This one man who was right when everyone else was wrong, and a real exploration of why he was. Right, and was able to look at things so differently from his colleagues uh,
2: back in the Gilded Age, and and only took a little over a hundred years for us to reach that point.
0: Yeah, that's so, he was hundred years ahead of his time. That's exactly. Were
2: you? Yeah, 100, at least hundred years ahead of his time. Um, were you? I'm, I'm I'm picturing young Peter Canellos in his early 20s, sitting in Columbia Law School, in New York reading Plessy versus Ferguson, is, and is that when you got the idea, hey, one day I'm gonna write a book about Justice Harlan. Cause I didn't have that same, I did not have that same thought process in, at Emory Law School. Yeah, truth
0: you be told, I was not thinking in those terms either. I, it was more like, you know, when you're a young person and you read about a certain historical figure or a certain contemporary figure that's older or something, you know, these, these thoughts and these actions about these people and what they did, Uh, stick in your mind. You know, they're just kind of interesting different figures, different stories. And I I imagine everybody kind of carries around some of these. So I I was just intrigued by Harlan. And then in 2005, I was the Washington Bureau Chief for the Boston Globe uh, and overseeing our coverage of the Alito and Roberts nomination for the Supreme Court. And in the course of editing a story, I went to a... um, an old fashioned print legal encyclopedia that we had in the office there and happened to uh, be checking some facts and read the entry on Harlan. And uh, it just had one sentence in it towards the end. And it said he was thought to be the half brother of Robert Harlan, the leading black politician in Ohio. (laughs) And it was then that I thought, oh, you know, all these years I've been wondering, why was Harlan so different than all these colleagues? and this isn't the whole answer, but it's it's obviously uh, suggestive of this very interesting backstory uh, to John Harlan's uh, life and and jurisprudence. Um, And it was then in 2005 that I began uh, envisioning it as a book. And then, you know, just the normal like career paths of taking different jobs and all that, I wasn't able to devote a lot of concerted time to it until the last, you know, five years or so.
2: So, How long would you say it took you to write the
0: book? Well, you know, I think people who write books know that, like, conceiving of the book is actually the, the most difficult part. So, you know, that took place over a period of decades. Uh, mm-hmm. Once you actually sat down to work on it, and I was very pleased to be able to uh, hire a couple of young journalists to, to like, look up uh, uh, records and do other forms of research, especially online records, because uh, people of our generation are not quite as good uh, working uh working computer records, uh, define things like African-American newspapers that have just been digitized within the last 10 years, 15 years. And those records showed uh, two important things. One is you know, the centrality of Robert Harlan to political discussions in the African-American community, but also the extent to which John Harlan's dissents were a regular topic of conversation uh, among uh, black leaders during that time and how when these uh, many race cases, it's many more than just Plessy uh, came, came down the pike, uh, there were you know, very high-minded discussions about Harlan's legal ideas, John Harlan's legal ideas uh, in those publications, which were very sophisticated publications at that time. And so you can begin to see two things, both the, the, uh, the influence of Robert Harlan within the black community and as a bridge between the black community and the white community, and you can also see John Harlan's influence in all those, you know, young uh, black lawyers sort of emerging over time, uh, you know, culminating in the middle 20th century civil rights movement uh, led by Thurgood Marshall. So um, it was uh, a fresh exploration of uh, of Harlan's role in society and his influence and Robert Harlan's influence.
3: So. So, Peter, um, I, w- I want to ask you, I mean, I, I, you know, I'm sort of the great dissenter of this podcast. Robin sends me an outline and I never I never sing off the same page of the hymnal. And I think one of the things I think I'm correct about this. You've also been portrayed on the silver screen uh, <laughs> and, and the movie Spotlight, which is one of my favorite movies, which was about the Catholic uh, uh, Catholic Church uh, scandal, uh, sex, sex abuse scandal. And, you know, watching that and I, I started my. But before I went to law school, I was a congressional press secretary, so I've been a quasi you know journalist involved person. But I, you know, I could sense, you know, watching that movie, everybody knows this is a big story. Everybody knows, you know once this you know once we get this story out and and there's a great scene where it finally hits the front page uh, of the newspaper. And, and I wonder if you compare that sort of to to, to uh, justice harlan here did he did he know the words he was writing were going to have an effect was he self-aware do you think enough to say that one day these these views might might carry the day or did he just sort of think "I'm, i'm i'm just expressing my view and doing the right thing here
0: no i i think that he felt like he was articulating um a, a different standard of jurisprudence, particularly in the race cases. Uh, you know, When he was on the court, many of the matters that related to the post-Civil War amendments, uh, the 13th, 14th, and 15th amendments were sort of matters of first impression. And you would have the court's majority have sort of one interpretation that was very much influenced by, by two things. It was influenced by a desire to uh, repair wounds with the South and try to reunify the country in the eyes of the court's majority among whites in the South and uh, and North. And also uh, the tremendous economic boom in the North uh, that really transformed the economy. I mean, it was transforming because of railroads even before the Civil War, but it absolutely boomed after the Civil War. And that created this tremendous concentration of great wealth and influence and power in in the uh, leaders of these trusts, primarily in the North. And so Harlan, who was the only uh, quasi-Southerner on the court, was able to look at things through a very different uh, set of eyes. And I think that he felt not only was he providing a different perspective uh, in terms of you know geography and where he was coming from in terms of the economy and race, but also in terms of what those post-Civil War amendments meant. You know, this was a time when the framers of those amendments were still alive. Uh, People knew that when you, you know, passed an amendment that said equal protection of the law, uh, that does not mean separate but equal, it means equal, you know, and Harlan was very confident in those, in those views. And he, he maintained that confidence, he first became a, a, a real dissenter and broke with his colleagues in 1883, and he lived until 1911, and, and right up to his death, he believed that he was right, and he was uh, going to be vindicated. He gave a series of lectures at what is now George Washington University Law School. And uh, at one point was sort of musing about the financial sacrifices that people made in those days in public service. You know, if you go back and look at the salaries for the Supreme Court, they were not they were not low. They translate to like two hundred and fifty thousand dollars in today's dollars. But they had this tremendous uh, social responsibility where, you know, literally you had to have an open house for hundreds of people every week. You know, socially uh, in Washington, there were these tremendous social expenses and demands. Plus, Harlan had a large family that he had to support many extended relatives to. So he was always um, financially uh, burdened in a way that his colleagues, who were all wealthy corporate attorneys from the North, uh, were not. Um, and so he was musing before the law school class about the, the cost of public service. And he said, the reason we do this is the desire of every man to live after he dies. So I think Harlan was thinking during all those years, you know, I am am writing for posterity here. There will be people in the future who will go back and look at what I wrote. And, you know, what he wrote was both technically interesting in terms of his interpretations of, of the law. You know, he was the first justice to Uh, proposed what we now call the incorporation doctrine to say that the uh, 14th Amendment incorporates the Bill of Rights and applies it to states. Um, So many of today's legal innovations were proposed by Harlan, but he also was a, a forceful kind of moral dissenter. I mean, he would scold the court for violating the original intent of the Constitution. And I think he felt like those words were aimed at future generations, and that future generations would see them in clearer light than his colleagues were in the 1880s and 1890s. And he was right.
3: So you, you called him a, uh, I think, a quasi-Southerner, and uh, he he was from Kentucky, uh, uh, who has produced uh, many many great things. My 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 beloved co-host Robin Brazier Clark. Uh, is produced by Kentucky bourbon is produced by Kentucky, but you know, as, as a deep South Southerner uh, from Georgia, I look back and I I see a lot more uh, moderation from this era coming out of Kentucky uh, than I do others, you know, people like Henry Clay, how much do you think uh, his upbringing in Kentucky contributed to his ultimate views? And uh, you know, particularly Uh, Do do, do you think, uh, you know, what was different about Kentucky uh, from other places that other justices uh, uh, grew up that sort of led him there?
0: Yeah, I think I think you're exactly right, Lester, that he was very shaped by being a young politician in one of the the leading families of Kentucky um, in the years leading up to the Civil War. And he he was you know his father was uh, a very uh, prominent attorney for that era in Kentucky. But Kentucky was largely wilderness in that era. But he his father was the you know had the leading private law library in Kentucky, and his father was a close supporter and confederate of Henry Clay's, and that uh, strata of Kentuckian during that era. Uh, was terrified of the looming Civil War. You know, they were looking to their south and seeing everybody talking about states' rights and secession. They were looking to the north and seeing everybody demanding abolition. And they knew that their state was divided between uh, slaveholding holding sympathies and, and free state sympathies. And their state was also geographically directly between uh, the south and the north. So they envisioned Kentucky being destroyed in two ways, uh, physically as the battleground, but also in terms of its civic fabric being torn apart. So John Harlan grew up in this ultra patriotic family. You know, he he was named after the great Chief Justice John Marshall, and he was named after John Marshall for a reason, because his father and Henry Clay, sensing this, this uh, looming crisis in the country, believed that the law would provide a way out that politics would not. And it was John Marshall, the Chief Justice, who asserted judicial supremacy and the supremacy of the law over politics. So they were, John Harlan grew up as a true believer in the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution and the words of the Founding Fathers. And and he grew up in an era when all of the rest of the world was uh, ruled by monarchies and totalitarian governments and really believed that American democracy was the great hope for mankind. And yet they saw the racial issue, the slavery issue completely destroying this country. And you know, Henry Clay enacted compromise after compromise. They were working on things like colonization, on compensating slave owners, on geographical separation between slave and free states. And it, it was succeeding only to of sort of kicking the can down the road. And then the Supreme Court in the Dred Scott decision goes way beyond uh, the necessary facts to settle the Dred Scott dispute and declares African-Americans including free African-Americans, all those folks in Cincinnati like Robert Harlan who had freed themselves had no rights under the constitution. And I think it was then that John Harlan believed that all those compromises would fail and that war would come. And he sided with the Union and played a a heroic role in keeping Kentucky in the Union. But he um, I think he felt like Supreme Court let down the country. And that's why in later years, he would always reference the Dred Scott decision in his dissents. Uh, You know, Plessy v. Ferguson was a very obscure case when it was first settled. It's only Harlan in the end saying someday this will be as infamous as Dred Scott which wasn't even laughable at that time. It wasn't even front page news in, in, in New Orleans where the case was based and, uh, and now he was right. It is as infamous as Dred Scott. And he had this sense that the Supreme Court was letting down the country in Dred Scott, that uh, race and inequality was the sort of original sin of slavery that, that doomed, almost doomed the American experiment. And so in later years, when he confronts things like the Insular Cases in the first decade of the 20th century, when the United States is, is uh, sovereign over the Philippines, Hawaii, Puerto Rico, and Cuba, he is the only justice saying definitively the Constitution has to follow the flag. And he writes, you know, you cannot have in this country two systems of government, you know, one where the Constitution is the sovereign over the the mainland United States, and then all these limited systems cobbled together by Congress that are running all these people in these other countries and other places that are that are no less the United States than the continental United States. And um, that was in him saying, look, if we allow inequality under the law to fester again uh, through American colonization, we're setting up the same conditions that led to the Civil War. You know, so the lessons of the Civil War era, you know, the the lead up to the Civil War were always on his mind, even 30 years after the Civil War.
2: You, you've mentioned his brother or half-brother, Robert Harlan. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about that story and how having Robert as his half-brother more than likely influenced his views on equality? Robert
0: Harlan, uh, became a prominent person. So we, there were a lot of newspaper stories written about him, both in the black press, but also in the mainstream uh, media of the time, since Choir and places like that. Uh, and it's an amazing story. He was born in in Southern Virginia, a uh, place called Mecklenburg County, Virginia, uh, uh, on a, enslaved on a plantation. Uh, his mother, um, a woman of mixed race, um, and when he was eight years old, the story was that he and his mother made this uh, perilous four 50 mile journey to Kentucky to find his father. Now, the place they went was Harlan Station, which was essentially a family town. So that's strongly suggestive that they believed his father was a member of the Harlan family. Uh, and through a series of transactions that nobody can completely unravel, uh, eight-year-old Robert, became owned by James Harlan, who was the father of John Harlan, Uh, and the mother ended up being sold down south to to Louisiana. But we don't know how all these uh, transactions sorted out or what happened there, Uh, but we do know that James Harlan, who was only 24 when he acquired Robert at age eight, so there's, there was speculation in later years that this could have been some sort of sexual initiation in Virginia, because James Harlan's mother's family was from Mecklenburg County. So the thought was that, you know, maybe James or one of the other Harlan men was found in Mecklenburg County visiting the in-laws, and there was, that's, that's when Robert became conceived. But one way or the other, James Harlan took a very special interest in, in Robert. Uh, and... Um, as he continues to have nine children with his wife, Robert still had a sort of special uh, place of interest, even though he was technically enslaved in the family. And um, so James tried to educate Robert, but they wouldn't take him because he was African-American. And in a way that uh, gave Robert this sort of uh, rough education where he, he had to learn where to find opportunities where a person who was not only African-American, but was enslaved at that time, You know, could find some opportunities to do things. And the Kentucky horse racing industry was one. And he was able to uh, develop this expertise in horse racing that would carry him through his life. He was heralded for being able to size up a horse on site. And he later, in later years, became a trainer and owner himself. Then he started a series of businesses. He ran a grocery store, he ran a barber shop. He was very entrepreneurial. But in 1849, when he was in his early 30s, uh, he heard about the gold rush and was one of the first people to make this sort of other perilous journey to San Francisco where he sold supplies in a, in a crazy inflationary manner and may also have prospected for gold, but came back with the equivalent of five or $6 million in today's dollars in gold, which went a lot further even to, than today's money would go. He relocated to Cincinnati, which was then the terminus of the Underground Railroad, and invested in black-owned businesses, everything from grocery stores to hotels. The hotel where he literally uh, he had runaway slaves that he was the owner of. He uh, also invested in a photo studio that led to uh, pioneering work by black photographers in Cincinnati that still is recognized today. And then he conceived as a sort of showman that with his wealth he would buy horses, go to England because he. He was very interested in travel and had, from 1851, had sort of toured Europe. Uh, so he took horses to Europe to stage a series of races of transatlantic competition, like from Kentucky horses to Newmark horses in England, and got a tremendous amount of attention. And then he came back after the Civil War from England and, and became the leading Black politician, the leading Republican politician in a Black Republican in Ohio, which was then the swing state. You know, the state that determined the presidency. So he was on a first name basis with Grant and Garfield and McKinley and Harrison, all these uh, Republican politicians that became president from Ohio. And uh, the New York World, a newspaper said, Robert Harlow's influence over the black community is, is greater than anybody except for Frederick Douglass. He was like the number, in their mind, the number two black leader in the country. And he became, he worked very closely with the Republican Party. So when John Harlan, after the 1876 disputed election, Rutherford Hayes promised to put a Southerner on the court, and Harlan, uh, John Harlan from Kentucky, was the only sort of quasi-Southerner whose views were sort of acceptable to the North. But at the time, uh, Congress was controlled by Northern Republicans who were still very supportive of civil rights and doubted John Harlan's commitment to civil rights. And Robert Harlan vouched for him. So Robert Harlan probably played a, a role, we don't know how much of a role, but a role in sort of uh repairing John Harlan's reputation from having been a slave owner to uh to to, to being a supporter of civil rights to, to get him on the court. And then when we talk about you know him being the only Southerner, which he was, um it's a very interesting evolution because all of the northern justices had what would for the time would be considered perfect credentials on race. They were all supporters of the Civil War and at various points supporters of abolition, at times when John Harlan was not. And um, then, as years went by, and those justices became very interested in sort of repairing relations with the South for economic purposes, among other things, uh, and and were very wary of offending white Southerners, John Harlan was the only person who had personal experiences with Black people. So, you know, he had a, fri- a friendship and relationship that extended well into their careers and adulthood with Robert Harlan. He was also a personal friend of Frederick Douglass's. Uh, and, you know, just from living in Kentucky, he knew many free Black people and uh, had, had a... a a personal set of associations that made a big difference to him. The Northern justices did not. So when people started talking about either you know, racial inferiority or the idea that Black people had been held in a childlike state under slavery and needed many years to be able to become real citizens, Carlin knew that was, that was bunk and sort of said so. And the Northern justices kind of accepted it. So it was quite a, an interesting transformation <laughs> Uh, where the Southerner became the enlightened figure on civil rights and the Northerners became the, uh, the villains.
2: Of it's still fascinating that you, you say all the Northern Supreme Court justices had their, what we call the bona fides of abolitionist or, or free freedom. And yet it was John Harlan who dissented in Plessy. Um, and I think you write about how the Northern justices may never have even met a Black person and here sure. John Harlan had been raised with one. Um, I, I I can't help but think that framed his whole view of equality and rights, civil rights.
0: I, I think it did too and it certainly led him also to, um, to have personal interactions with Black people even, even during the height of segregation and one, one of the things that's very sad is you see the extent to which segregation completely uh, separated the country in, in that um, before the Civil War, uh, Frederick Douglass was a very sought after person among uh, progressive whites in the North. You know, He was a house guest on Beacon Hill and in the chambers of New York and places like that where people wanted to hear him talk about the evils of slavery. After the Civil War and during the period of segregation, people closed the doors on him. When you know, at Frederick Douglass's funeral was held in Washington D.C., and none of the leaders of the country, white leaders of the country, came except for two: John Harlan, the only member of the Supreme Court to show up, and uh, John Sherman, who was the the brother of uh, General Sherman, William Tecumseh Sherman, and was a progressive senator from Ohio. They were the only two white figures to show up at Frederick Douglass's funeral. You know, this man who was you know hailed by white Liberals before the Civil War, uh, they they turned on him. You know, they they completely excluded him. It was also striking when John John Marshall Harlan himself died. There were spontaneous memorial services in cities across the country, all black services in black churches. There was even a very big one. In Washington, I mean, there were three smaller ones, and then there was a big memorial service two weeks after he died, with a thousand people at Washington's A.M.E. A metropolitan A.M.E. Church, and no white person attended. You know, it was all black people. Uh, so it showed just how separate these two words, worlds were. But in those last decades, in the 1890s and the uh, first decade of the 20th century. John Harlan would speak at the Palton AME. He talked to a group of Black lawyers. When he journeyed back to Kentucky uh, in his 70s to sort of make his last sentimental visit to Transylvania Law School, where he'd gone and tenor College, where he had been a student, he insisted on meeting with Black lawyers, even though it sort of ruffled his hosts uh, at that time. So he... Uh, you know he was very understanding of of black aspirations, and the black community deeply respected and valued that, and and honored him uh, when he died, and and respected him him during his life. I,
2: I read that at some of these black funerals for Justice Harlan, they read his dissent in Plessy, which is 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 pretty astounding to me that they would do that. Uh, you You think sometimes people reading the Constitution on the steps of the Capitol or something like that. But here they read his dissent at his at and it wasn't his funeral. It was It was memorials, I guess, that they spontaneously had for him. He, he meant so much to the black community and I, I think there are two things we could take
0: away from that. One is, you know, put yourself in the position of being a young African American and, at, at that service, listening to to those words, um, I think it gave people hope in the black community that someday uh, white people would, some white people would be able to see the law through their eyes, and the fact that one white person did, rather than none, it, it broke that idea that there was this this endless conspiracy among whites to hold blacks down. Uh, You know, when Harlan dissented in the civil rights cases of 1883, which is a very high profile case, when he dissented in Plessy, when he dissented in the Berea College case, he was the sole dissenter in all these cases that took away African American rights. He would receive letters and black people would write in, in black newspapers about his unbelievable courage. You know, clearly black people thought that he was literally putting his life on the line to sort of break with the conspiracy among other white people. That was not really the case. I mean, I think Harlan still enjoyed uh, good relations with his white colleagues because he was such an outlier that they didn't feel threatened by him. But um, in the black community, what it revealed is that they they really thought that, you know there was a a monolithic conspiracy among whites to hold them down. And, And here was this one powerful white man who stood up and there were these very moving editorials written when he died about you know, what is gonna to happen to our race now that the only person who, who supports us is dead. Um, but I think that the fact that there were these dissenting opinions gave the next generation of black leaders uh, the confidence to try to take on segregation the belief that you know, one by one more Harlan's would emerge to, uh, to support civil rights. The other thing that you can take away from reading the Plessy dissent at uh, M- Metropolitan Amin and other places is how the Plessy dissent was that very rare judicial opinion that sort of reaches into the foundational principles of the country. You know, the lines in his dissent, the Constitution is colorblind and neither knows nor tolerates classes among citizens. The humblest is the peer of the most powerful. There is no past here. You know, these are uh, the kinds of statements that are designed to inspire people and to and to go to what it is that makes the United States different from every every other country on on Earth. That commitment to equality that isn't just sitting there in the Fourteenth Amendment plainly and in the Declaration of Independence, but it was it was part of what made America America and. Uh, Harlan is appealing to white people and black people's sense of patriotism and commitment to these ideals in a way that Lincoln did, but no no judicial figure really did other than Harlan. So, you know, today we remember that Plessy dissent as one of the great documents in legal history. And I think people don't even, you know, appreciate the extent to which it was the inspiration for so many people who then carried the fight into the next century on civil rights uh, like people like Thurgood Marshall. So, uh,
3: I'm going to ask you to put your lawyer hat on uh, for just a minute because you're trained as a lawyer as well as a journalist. I'm going to avoid Uh, repeating that quote about uh, those who failed to learn the lessons of history. But we currently have a vacancy on the United States Supreme Court. And so there's a lot of debate about who or what kind, not just who, but what kind of background, what kind of person, you know, should fill that vacancy, Uh, you know, sort of uh, to my amazement, one of the folks being considered is uh, Michelle Childs, who went to my law school, which uh, and uh, I didn't go to Columbia. I went to law school in Columbia, South Carolina, uh, but, uh, uh, it seems to me that now we talk a lot about, uh, potential Supreme court justices, educational background, almost all Ivy league folks, uh, you know, for a while, you know, I think they had somebody on the court from every, uh, from all the five boroughs of New York, uh, you know, at, at one time, um, uh, but we don't have a lot of Hugo Blacks who grew up in abject poverty in Clay County, uh, Alabama, uh, or really uh, uh, Lewis Powells, who were sort of, uh, you know, a line at the uh, at the trial bar. He'd been president of the ABA and and things like that. Uh, what from your study of, of Harlan, what's the most important thing, your educational background or your upbringing or. Uh, what, what kinds of things should a president look for to get somebody like the great dissenter? And maybe even more to the point, are are there any more John Marshall Harlan's out there? Uh,
0: I think there probably are John Marshall Harlins, but they would not uh, fit the bill necessarily uh, in the in the very narrow way that we choose Supreme Court justices today. And uh, I I agree with you, Lester, that an important part about the Harlan story. Is talking about the the importance of life experiences. Um, you know, we talked about how Harlan, just simply from coming from Kentucky, came from a very different economic place than all these northern corporate attorneys who had a, you know, what we today would consider uh, a tremendous bias in favor of these uh, trusts that were setting prices and wages throughout the country, but were serving to enrich New York and New Jersey primarily, but other northeastern areas as well. Uh, even as a disadvantage tremendously places like Tennessee and Kentucky. And, um, uh, you know, we haven't talked that much about these economic cases, but Harlan was a powerful dissenter when the Supreme Court declared the Sherman Antitrust Act unconstitutional. He was the sole dissenter in that. When when they claimed the income tax was unconstitutional, Harlan dissented. In the Lochner case, when they said all labor regulations per se were unconstitutional, Harlan dissented. So uh, he was coming from a very different Different place. And uh, he wanted to be true to his life experiences. We talked about the years leading up to the Civil War. We talked about the relationship with Robert Harlan. All of these things uh, combined and were part of his values. And it it didn't necessarily mean he was was any less uh, attentive to the strictures of the Constitution because many people regard him as the first originalist, you know, that he was defending the original intent and the text. This, the specific text of the Constitution, but he, he he did so also because he had a set of personal uh, understandings and connections uh, that uh, that opened his mind to possibilities that his colleagues did not have. Uh, I think it's also unfortunate that we don't have politicians on the Supreme Court anymore, uh, and that's largely because of the abortion issue. Uh, you know, if you're a politician running for anything, you have to take a position on abortion, and it's almost per se assumed to be impossible to confirm people if they took a, a straight position on abortion, so we're missing uh, a lot of life experience on on the Supreme Court and people talk in terms of. Uh, you know, including more people of, of different racial backgrounds and genders and all that, which is very, very important. But life experience is also important, and you know there is a sense in which the uh, Supreme Court has some of the characteristics today of sort of a, you know, a faculty lounge debate, uh, as opposed to you know people really grappling with uh, what is the best result for the country.
3: You know. Yeah. It seems like yeah, yeah. You know, a Good way to uh, put it. I, I love the uh, uh, it's from Spoon River Anthology. They talk about a judge who's a. Uh, picker of rags and the rubble of spikes and wrongs. And, you know, that's sort of what the Supreme Court seems to do today. And we talk about constitutional scholars uh, or sch- constitutional scholarship, which I think is sort of an oxymoron, because, uh, you know, uh, when David Boies defended CBS and the Westmoreland libel trial. Somebody asked his wife, can he really do this? This is a he's not a First Amendment lawyer. And she said, it's a very short amendment. I think he can learn it. (laughs) And, and, um, you know, you really you really don't have to be that smart to read the U.S. Constitution and sort of know what it means. But you do have to have a lot of life experience to know what it means to people in everyday walks of life, as it, applied, yeah. And it seems to me that uh, that that Harlan just sort of makes an outstanding case uh, for that for that premise.
0: Well, you could also say the Harlan and Holmes comparison kind of comes into play because in, in Harlan's era, this sort of Harvard and Yale position was very represented by by Holmes, who called Harlan. The last of the tobacco spitting judges. Now, <laughs> I think there was some certain amount of wit in that, in that Harlan actually chewed tobacco. <laughs> but um, but I think that, you know it was received by some people as a little condescension, like you know he's he's the and I'm the you know scholarly guy from Beacon Hill. Uh, but you know if you look at the actual results of their jurisprudence and you know where they stood on these various cases. Harlan had a firmer sense of justice. I think. I think you know. Even the people who deeply admire Justice Holmes and see him as a brilliant figure in the law and a crafter of judicial doctrines and you know a truly uh, outstanding and extraordinary figure would agree that you know uh, Holmes would sometimes allow his uh, intellectual uh, desire to kind of uh, you know create a, a consistent doctrine to to blind him to, to uh, real injustices and things like. Uh, the case involving eugenics. In some of the race cases, like the Berea College case, you know, uh, Harlan was the sole dissenter, and Holmes was with the majority. Um, and that was a case that that uh, outlawed uh, interracial education. Um, so there are a number of instances where Holmes's judgment went astray because of his intellectualism and because of his uh, fanciful notions. While Harlan was sort of had that politician's grounding in sort of well, what are we really talking about here, and that. Uh, perspective that comes from, you know, being out in the country, so to speak. And um, I think that attests to the importance of life experience. And that is a big uh, lesson from the work that I've done and from the book that I've written that, you know, life experience counts a lot.
3: I, th- I think you've made a serious error here, though, Peter, because it, you know as eloquent as the great dissenter is for a title, the last tobacco spitting judge would have been <laughs> just just a marvelous uh, title for your book, uh, at least for this country lawyer.
0: I I agree, and you know as as uh, as you guys have pointed out, this is a dynamic story. It's a family story. It's about Robert and John Harlan, and you look at Robert Harlan's life, which. You know, we've only touched on a little bit. And, you know, his his life was a perfect illustration of the opportunities that were created for Black people when their rights were protected in the first, you know, 12 or 15 years after the Civil War. And then how it, segregation, you know, tore apart his family. Uh, uh, no, it didn't tear them apart because they continued to be, you know, educated professionals, but it, it took away any... Uh, economic opportunity from them and and you know reduce their prospects so seriously and you know so this is a dynamic story this is a genera- multi-generational family story about like how human life and the law interacts and stuff and uh, I chafe a little when people see you know the great dissenter and the picture of Harlan looking like a Victorian gentleman on there and I think they imagine it's the kind of biography where you go through the great man's diary and you know talk about what he does year by year and this is actually a a uh, you know a, a a rollicking tale of how human beings can help to shape the law not just in their lifetime but beyond their lifetime and how these personal experiences interact with official you know business before Supreme Court uh, and and you're right I kind of wish that we could do something to to get people to see that aspect of the story
3: did uh, you know I know you also uh, did a biography of of Senator Kennedy uh, who uh, was in 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 the Senate, when I worked in the Senate and the, the House of Representatives, uh, you know, you, you talk about Harlan's collegiality with other folks, and I remember that you know Kennedy certainly had that. Even even was great friends with Jerry Falwell, you know, for 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 a time. But uh, do you, it was the Harlan family, sort of the the Kennedys of Kentucky. Uh, when he was growing up, you know, he was born into this political family. Is there uh, is there sort of that to the manner born uh, type uh, uh, upbringing of his that that you see any similarities with?
0: Well, there are some similarities. I think that uh, they had they certainly had a kind of aristocratic in the in the best sense viewpoint before the Civil War. I think that the Clays, the Crittenden's, the Breckenridges, the Harlins of Kentucky saw themselves as, um, you know, aristocrats like the great families of Virginia were, you know, Kentucky was sort of carved out of Virginia and, and they didn't have the money the Virginians had because they didn't have these giant plantations and they weren't, you know, shipping tobacco overseas. But they had racehorsing they, the sport of Kings. <laughs> the Sport of Kings. No, they weren't. I mean, yeah, they were, they were, uh, they were bringing the American version of the sport of Kings. But they weren't making as much money as uh, uh, the British but um, uh, but they they did think in terms of they were very proud that Kentucky was very progressive before the Civil War. You know they they were like number one in education. They were the the most enlightened uh, state in what was known as the West during that time. And and they really cared about you know civic investment and and the fate of their uh, of their state from that sort of aristocratic point of view. Uh, and I think that, you know, Joe Kennedy, the father of Ted Kennedy and John Kennedy and others, in a very interesting and different way as an as an immigrant, you know, at a time when many of the Irish in Boston were following Mayor Curley into this sort of position of opposition. You know, Joe Kennedy kind of embraced the founding principles of the United States. You know, it, he sent his kids to Harvard, at a time when Harvard was associated with only white Protestants, and that you know Irish kids were supposed to go to Boston College, uh, is a way of sort of fusing, you know, sort of sort of adopting the uh, American story as, as part of the immigrant story and part of the Irish story. And so I think the Kennedy's had a little of that same aristocratic attitude and optimism that the Harlands had. The Harlands, uh, for all that John Marshall Harlan's grandson went on the court, you know, and there's a suggestion they were this great American family. Uh, He really stood out and Robert stood out among the other Harlans because they they had the travails of many average large families, as frankly, the Kennedys did, too. I mean, they had a lot of relatives who were alcoholic relatives who died tragically, relatives who, um, uh, you know, got enmeshed in in legal disputes and scandals and things. So, uh, you know, yeah, they had an aristocratic attitude, but they they, uh, you know, None. of these families really bear close
3: scrutiny in terms of having a monopoly on wisdom. They don't. They don't hold up. Uh, <laughs> they both had Johns and Roberts, though.
2: <laughs> you know, you mentioned that you you some people call Justice Harlan the, the first originalist. Um, would you also call him a strict constructionist? That that's kind of the the hot lingo for judges, certainly in Georgia, um, appellate judges in Georgia, and I'm sure appellate judges in other conservative states that they've gotta be strict constructionists. But it seems to me you could make the argument Harlan was because he simply read the 14th Amendment.
0: He did. I mean, it should be noted that in cases like uh, Lochner, and others. If you read his dissent in Lochner, he's he's again very close to where the law is today. In that, um, he was a supporter of unenumerated rights. So the people who who will say, you know, he was a strict constructionist, he was a, a believer in original intent, that that is true. But he also believed that there was a zone of privacy among individuals, and he, um, you know, he wrote and he believed that. Now he believed that there would also be. A lot of latitude for state legislatures to, uh, to to legislate to solve national issues and national problems. So He was not uh, in the place where some of his colleagues were saying that, uh, you know, the Constitution bars uh, as legislatures from uh, passing labor laws and things like that. But to the extent that you know the Roe v. Wade dispute kind of dominates a lot of legal discussion these days, it's an intriguing question where Harlan would be on that. You know, mm-hmm. and you can make arguments for either side. But it is not true that he was such a strict constructionist that he would never uh, enforce an unenumerated right. Uh, he he did believe, or, or it. perhaps find a right
2: right of privacy. Yes in there somewhere. One one episode in his law in his uh life as a supreme court justice I'd like for you to touch upon was the um the Ed Johnson trial. The first time there was ever a trial. I guess the only time maybe there was a trial in the United States Supreme Court. Fascinating stuff. Can you share with us a little bit about that? Uh Yeah, this, this is an
0: yeah this is a great moment in Supreme Court history that people don't really talk about and haven't really comprehended until very recently uh, because it's not a normal Supreme Court case. It's not something that has a legal precedent to associate with it. Um, But what happened was um, because there was no expansive uh, FBI or federal court system and things like that during the era after the Civil War, uh, the Supreme Court sort of um, held back from enforcing uh, basic sort of procedural and uh, substantive rights uh, when state courts violated those rights. And there was the tremendous reluctance on the part of justices to overrule state opinions because they they feared it would like inflame anger uh, in the South particularly. Now, Harlan was uh, overseeing the circuit that included Kentucky and Tennessee, And there was a terrible lynching in Chattanooga. Uh, And it was a case where, or I I should say, it started off, to take back, it started off as a rape case where a black man on very flimsy evidence was convicted of raping a white woman when she didn't even make a definitive uh, identification. Uh, And so a black lawyer brought that case up to Washington, and Harlan was in his position overseeing the circuit. And uh, he found that, you know, basic legal procedures are violated, including you know, having a juror, you know, start screaming at the defendant in the middle of the trial and the juror was not excused and things like that. So Harlan, all he did was grant a uh, review by the Supreme Court and order a stay of uh, execution. But it's so inflamed people in Chattanooga, that Chattanooga state officials, led by a sheriff who was a Confederate war veteran, left the jail unguarded and allowed a mob to take the prisoner and lynch him uh, before hundreds of people in Chattanooga. It was this huge place. And uh, Harlan uh, was so outraged, uh, and they literally, the mob was chanting Harlan's name. And somebody put a, a sign on the body saying, Judge Harlan, here's your N word now. Um, it was such an outrage that Harlan was able to persuade the board, including Chief Justice Fuller, including Holmes. To say that something had to be done with this, this flagrant violation of uh, Supreme Court uh, jurisprudence, so they agreed to try the leaders of the mob and the local officials, uh, the sheriff, uh, as a trial court uh, to sit and and uh, and and have uh, federal prosecutors bring a case against them. The the Attorney General bring a case against them uh, for contempt of the Supreme Court. And um, that they, were, uh, they were convicted and they were punished. Uh, but what the case really did was two very important things. One is many uh, African-American scholars have said this is the first time that Black people saw the Supreme Court acting aggressively on their behalf. And it was Harlan alone in ordering a, retry, in ordering a review of the case. Um, but then later also the rest of the Supreme Court coming together to to try to punish the contempt court. But then it also established a fact so that many years later, hundred years later when Chattanooga confronts this terrible chapter in its history, they know that uh, it wasn't just, you know, Ku Klux Klan members with sheets over their heads. It was, you know, newspaper editorials (laughs) firing people up It was the local judge promising swift action and all but promising conviction. It was sheriff leading the jail unguarded. Uh, It sort of was, and ministers were preaching against the Supreme Court in the pulpit. So there were all these uh, facts that implicated, you know, not just the riffraff in Chattanooga, but the leaders of Chattanooga. And it's actually had a healing effect today in Chattanooga. In September, last September, they unveiled a memorial to Ed Johnson, the victim of this case. And there was a real, you know, recounting of what had happened to him. And you saw black people and white people in Chattanooga and and also many immigrants who are from from Asian countries and things like that, you know, sort of buying into it, coming together uh, to talk about, you know, the the wrong that was done to Ed Johnson and and to, a memorial, a permanent part of Chattanooga's uh, civic life. And that's only because Harlan had ordered the review and because Harlan persuaded his colleagues to take this case and punish the wrongdoers. And um, uh, it was a very notable moment in Supreme Court history that, that really has not been fully appreciated by people who study the Supreme Court.
2: Now, I'm so glad you, you told that story. Um, it's fascinating. And I'll say this, that Ed Johnson was represented by an African-American lawyer from Georgia, Stiles Hutchins, the first African-American lawyer admitted to the State Bar of Georgia in 1878. I know that because I spoke at the Georgia Supreme Court's 175th anniversary uh, a couple of months ago, and I had to include Stiles Hutchins. And his picture is in our judicial building, which I I like. But I just recently read about the Ed Johnson Memorial in Chattanooga. Uh, and it's fascinating. And I think I think it. we need to keep telling those stories so that generation after generation is aware of them. Um, so I'm glad you have. I think it's very, very important.
0: Yeah. Stiles Hutchins uh, gets his due in the memorial, uh, and as does Harlan as well. Yes.
2: Yeah. And I haven't been there. Um, but next time I go to Chattanooga, I'm going to go I'm going to go see that memorial. I think it, I, I want to see that. Well, Peter, it's just been a wonderful um, conversation with you about your book. I'm so excited about it, and I hope our listeners will will get it, which I assume they can get on Amazon or wherever they buy their books. Um, Acapella is our local books bookseller. They probably have it at Acapella Books.
3: Um, is there an audio audio version? Uh, oh, absolutely! It's a great audio version. Right. You
0: get it. You get a great audio version. Uh, I'm, an, I'm an auditory learner.
3: Driven. I like those. Yeah. Uh, I, I'm an auditory learner. I love those uh, those that come out in audio, so I can listen. Although uh, with the advent of COVID, I'm not in my car as much as I once was. But
2: one, one thing I wanted to ask you too before we close about the book, Peter, is that I understand a portrait of Justice Harlan hangs in the um, conference room, the justices conference room of the United States Supreme Court now and that Justice Roberts purposefully uh, put it there. Now, I don't know the backstory. I'm wondering if you have any thoughts about why Justice Roberts picked the portrait of Justice Harlan to hang in the conference room of the Supreme Court justices.
0: Well, the the, uh, the Supreme Court is notoriously closed mouthed about things, and uh, the Chief Justice is not gonna, you know, be too expansive in his explanation. So, you know, we were able to confirm that yes, he did, he did hang the portrait there. I also know that he told members of the Harlan family when they visited the court that he did so out of his great respect for uh, for the first Justice Harlan. Um, But I'll tell you, Justice Harlan is a unique figure in American law because he's equally respected by conservatives and liberals. You know, Justice Gorsuch is a huge Harlan admirer and has Harlan's portrait on the walls of his chambers. Uh, You know, my book has been strongly embraced by, you know, George Will and Mitch McConnell and the Federalist Society. Many, many conservatives embrace it, but also many, many liberals embrace it. We were talking about Judge uh judge collier in tennessee and many many other uh uh, liberal justices and law schools and and places so uh in fact one anecdote uh uh josh blackman who some of you may know from texas a texas law professor wanted to put together a nonpartisan think tank at the uh, university where he works and wanted to name it after a great figure in the law and uh, they went through, you know dozens of names that one side or the other considered inappropriate. And the only two names they came up with that were totally acceptable to left and right were Harlan and Robert Jackson because he was the prosecutor at the Nuremberg trials. But Harlan is really the only one who, you know, on the basis of his jurisprudence alone, uh, attracts equal admiration. And, uh, and that's a pretty extraordinary thing in today's uh, very divided legal, legal world. And I can only imagine that just Chief Justice Roberts uh, wanted to remind the justices, as they may sit in that conference room and make decisions, that, you know, there's, the posterity is watching. You know, the, the, the judgment of history is upon them. Uh, and Harlan certainly recognized that and, and wrote uh, with that in mind. And I think that's probably what Chief Justice Roberts wanted the, the court to be thinking about.
2: Pretty cool. Peter, we ask every guest at the, the close of the hour what your definition of justice is or your notion or how you would define it. So what is, how do you define justice?
0: I think it's the pursuit of a fair result. And I think that uh, Justice Harlan would say that there are many paths, uh, often agonizing paths that can lead to that, uh, that result of justice. But he believed that, uh, like Martin Luther King, the presence of justice is what safeguards our our society. Uh, You know, he had been uh, part of a commission that went down to New Orleans in uh, 1877 when there was such a division over a gubernatorial election that civil war was almost about to start again. And one of the issues was having federal troops sitting there occupying New Orleans. And he came to believe out of that that. You couldn't keep troops uh, in the South forever to enforce the Constitution, but that had to be the job of the courts and it had to be the job of lawyers. And it's more than just judges, it's the entire society and their commitment to the ideals of the Constitution. So he would say that we're constantly pursuing uh, a fair result and it's not a perfect process dissent as his own case shows plays a significant role in this mm-hmm. uh, and and yet if you if you hold fast to those constitutional values uh, you're, you're on the right path
2: wonderful Thank you Peter it's been a delight talking with you we've been um, talking with journalist and author Peter Canellos you can get his book the great dissenter the story of John Marshall Harlan America's judicial hero on Amazon, uh, in Kindle, paperback or hardback. And you can follow Peter on politico.com and on Twitter at Peter Canellos. So thank you so much, Peter. It's been wonderful.
0: Thank you, Rob. Thank you, Lester. It's been great.
3: Well, that was a great podcast today, Robin. And as you know, we always end our podcast with a little segment where we talk about things that are going on in the courts and in the news. What do you have uh, for us today?
2: Yeah, today I I picked a story uh, out of Michigan, and it was really because of our wonderful uh, discussion with Judge Ann Barnes on our last episode about her fidelity to the rule of law, and that her overarching job is to get it right, to get get the case right under the law. And this story from Michigan, here's the headline, appeals court says judge may be in the wrong line of work and vacates a sentence for a second time. So there's a Michigan trial judge who refused to take the advice or mandates of the Michigan Court of Appeals and kept sentencing incorrectly under the law. And it was a particular defendant who had uh, been found guilty of stabbing her boyfriend on Valentine's Day in 2015. Uh, But the jury convicted her of second degree murder, not first degree premeditated murder. But that didn't matter to this judge, this trial judge. He didn't like it. He didn't like, I don't think he liked her. He didn't like that, you know, what she had done. And so instead of sentencing her within the the range of sentencing for, for second degree murder, he sentenced her to first degree murder and gave her the first time a sentence of 35 to 70 years in prison. It goes up on appeal, and the Michigan Court of Appeal says, wait a minute, she wasn't found guilty of premeditated murder. You got to go back and resentence her. So he does. And the second time, this judge sentences sentences her to 30 to 70 years, knocking off five whole years. Again, incorrectly, because the guidelines for second-degree murder are between 12 and 20 years. So the second time he sentences her to 30 to 70, kind of like Clarence Henderson going up to the Supreme Court three (laughs) Three times. times. Here it is, this case going up to the Michigan Court of Appeals three times. And finally, uh, they just said enough. Michigan Court of Appeals said no, uh, wrong. She's gonna be sent that you cannot use your thoughts about what she did or that she was not found guilty of first degree premeditated murder. You have to sentence her within our state guidelines. And and because you refuse to do that, uh, we're gonna have a different trial judge sentence her. And so they remanded it to a different trial court for a different trial judge to sentence her correctly. In the Mission Court of Appeals, in, in an order, I can't imagine if you're a trial judge and this is the order you get back. But it says, quote, if a trial judge is unable to follow the law as determined by a higher appellate court, the trial judge is in the wrong line of work.
3: <laughs> I love it. I love it. I love it. Yeah. Um, it reminds me, We uh, a, a now deceased uh, uh, Superior Court judge from, from my neck of the woods used yeah. to say, uh, and it, I, I never heard it, it was reported to me secondhand, uh, said, you know, I'm, 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 I'm more powerful than the governor. I could take a man's house away from him. I can send him to the electric chair. It was, uh, I can, I could do all of these things and, uh, it just takes me. And so every now and then you do run up on judges that, that have that attitude. And it sounds like that the Michigan uh, Supreme court, uh, or court of appeals, put him, put him in his place. Yeah. Well, my, Mine today uh, comes from uh, the New York Times, and it's a February 9th, 2022 article. I sort of alluded to it a little bit other, uh, a little bit earlier when we were talking uh, with Peter about Justice Harlan, but uh, uh, it's entitled, A Product of Public Universities, Michelle Childs Would Be an Unconventional Pick. Mm-hmm. It goes on to say the judge is seen as a long shot for the Supreme Court, but supporters say her bipartisan backing and the appeal of her humble assent uh, should not be uh, overlooked. Uh, it goes on to talk about the fact that uh, she is a 55 uh, year old judge who has served on the federal bench since 2010. is seen in elite circles as a long shot compared with other black female candidates whose high prof- profile connections and an ivy League pedigree fit the mold of traditional of a, of a traditional Supreme Court appointee but Judge Child's powerful champions in Congress, particularly Representative James E. Clyburn, the South Carolina Democrat, who's widely credited with saving Mr. Biden's presidential candidacy and the broad appeal of her humble assent could make her a formidable contender. Uh, I picked this because uh we were talking about justice harlan you know today uh we also uh talked about there was some mention of robert uh, robert h jackson uh Mm -hmm. who uh wrote a brilliant ode to a country lawyer because he was in fact a country lawyer we talked about justice hugo black who uh went to school in alabama uh not not in cambridge and uh so all of those were great justices and so when this article says uh that, uh, you know, compared with others uh, whose high profile and Ivy League pedigrees fit the mold of a traditional Supreme Court appointee. I I think it's important to understand that that's a recent, if you look at the history of the Supreme Court, that's a recent uh, event that uh, it has been so uh, populated solely with people uh, with Ivy League degrees and uh, pedigrees with connections. Uh, And we've had a lot of great justices like the one we talked about today. Uh, I am certainly not critical of uh, certainly not critical of uh, you know people who have ivy League degrees that's a, that's a tremendous accomplishment. <laughs> yes. uh, but uh, I also think that people with uh, diverse backgrounds are able to see things uh, sometimes and i uh, w- while not uh, uh, trying to instruct President Biden on whom he should pick, uh, <laughs> think that uh, uh, judge uh, Judge Charles would make an excellent. Uh, excellent, excellent, uh, choice. Well, uh, let me,
2: let me say about that. I was listening, um, to another podcast called advisory opinion yesterday, and they kind of handicapped wouldn't say it's a race, but they handicapped the nomination. Uh, and they've now put her just judge childs. in, in the lead by a length uh, from the other folks based on Clyburn support, uh, that, that that all things being equal, if child's is the same as any other, but you can do a political favor payback with it, why wouldn't you? So that's one thing. Secondly, Lindsey Graham, Senator Graham has come out in support of her, said she's eminently qualified. And so you're going to, let's say, God forbid, something happened to one Democratic, Democrat voting, something happened and we needed a, a Republican vote. Well, Lindsey Graham's going to vote for her. Uh, from his state, and he knows her and says she's qualified. So there's a lot of little extra reasons that they pointed out on this podcast, which I tend to agree with why she may be the front runner.
3: Well, you know, another thing that is not, I don't think, in this article, uh, but uh, having gone to law school in South Carolina, South Carolina state court judges, and she was a state court judge before she was a, uh, a federal judge, are elected by the legislature and uh so the legislature in south carolina is very uh republican so she's she's gotten republican votes for election or confirmation before so i think that uh i i hope she's got a pretty good uh, chance and uh, i was teasing our guest earlier who was a graduate of columbia law school Mm -hmm. you know i only went to law school uh in columbia south carolina but uh maybe the other columbia will get 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 a get a pick this time you know yeah
2: and uh, he says they, the the word is that ju- uh, President Biden will make his selection before the end of the month, so we'll be looking forward to that. It'll be interesting.
3: Absolutely. So uh, we want to thank our sponsor, the Georgia Civil Justice System. You may learn more about the foundation uh, at fairplay.org. Uh, we also uh, thank our producer uh, Raz Mishner and all of our listeners. Uh, if you want to learn about more of uh, more about me, which is doubtful, you can go to Aiken uh, dash tate uh or aiken tate.com uh, and you can learn more about our lovely uh my lovely co-host robin fraser clark which i'm sure you will want to at georgiatriallawyers.net uh you can learn more about the podcast at cu we hope you subscribe to the podcast and share it with your friends uh, and family and we'll be back to join us next time and until next time we will see, see you, you in, in court heart.
1: Thank you for listening to See You in Court, brought to you by the Georgia Civil Justice Foundation and the Georgia Institute of Technology. Please subscribe to this podcast and consider writing a review. You may find related documents to this week's episode on our website, seeyouincourt.podbean.com. Please send any questions, suggestions, or ideas to seeyouincourtpodcast@gmail.com. at gmail.com. The producer of this podcast is Raz Misher. We thank Nareen Hassan, Associate Professor and Director of Outreach and Community Engagement of the Georgia Institute of Technology School of Literature, Media, and Communication and the Georgia Tech students who helped bring you this podcast. I'm Fred Smith, Executive Director of the Georgia Civil Justice Foundation. You may learn more about the foundation at fairplay.org. On behalf of Robin Frazier-Clark and Lester Tate, Until our next episode, we'll see you in court.